0: You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage.
1: In the next 25 years, the number of women and Hispanic veterans will double, while African American veterans will increase by a third. Is the military changing to address these changing dynamics? On June 13th, the Washington Post Live explored the dramatically changing demographics of Americans' military veterans. Senator Martha McSally had an impressive military career She also revealed in powerful Senate testimony that during her years in the military, she was raped by a superior officer. In this segment, Senator McSally will share how legislation she recently introduced will help build support for victims and improve how their cases are investigated and prosecuted. Let's listen. Hi, good morning, I'm I'm Karen Tumulty. I'm a columnist here at the Washington Post. And we want to begin this program by thanking Senator McSally for being with us here this morning. Um, And before we start, um, I'd love to tell our audience, that both here and our virtual audience, that uh, you can tweet your questions using the hashtag postlive, one word. And I'll try to get to some of them later on, because they send them to me through this. Um, You know, Senator McSally, you read your, your resume and you begin to think that your first name is not Martha, it's First, that you were the first woman to, to fly a fighter in combat, you were the first woman to command a fighter squadron. Um, how did this ambition take root in you?
0: Well, thank you for having me here today. Uh, really grateful for the opportunity. I didn't have a probably typical path, I WAS ACTUALLY MOTION SICK WHEN I WAS A KID, SO IF ANYONE TOLD ME I WAS GOING TO BE A FIGHTER PILOT, I WOULD HAVE LAUGHED AT THEM, Um, BUT MY PATH WAS ONE WHERE MY DAD WAS FIRST GENERATION TO GO TO COLLEGE, SERVED IN THE NAVY, YOU KNOW, LIVED THE AMERICAN DREAM THROUGH PEOPLE BELIEVING IN HIM AND SERVING AND USING THE GI BILL, HE PROVIDED OPPORTUNITIES FOR US AND WAS VERY DRIVEN TO MAKE A BETTER LIFE FOR US, AND um, I'M THE YOUNGEST OF FIVE KIDS, AND I LOST MY DAD WHEN I WAS 12. And this was a really uh, formative and difficult thing to go through as a young person. He was 49 years old. And for me, I was brought up in a house where I could get told I could be anything I wanted to be, that there were no limits on me as a girl. And then my mom, think about it, single mom, five kids, you know, went back to school, back to work, uh, to raise, you know, raise the family. And I knew education was the key to my future, but I didn't want to saddle my mom with debt. I was looking for opportunities to channel my um, feistiness, I'm a little bit of a rebellious spirit that could have gone really either way. And I was self-aware enough to know that I wanted to do something that mattered with my my life. Before my dad passed away, I got to visit with him in between heart attacks and he told me to make him proud. And so this propelled me on this path, um, but I didn't know what I was doing. You're 17 years old when you make these decisions. So I ended up sort of stumbling into going to the Air Force Academy, uh, but I didn't have a clue. You know, you're a teenager about what I was getting into. I was just looking for a way to pay back in service. I thought it would channel my energy to be a part of something greater than myself, but I thought I was gonna be a doctor and it wasn't until i got to the air force academy that i found out for the first time just because i had ovaries i couldn't do something it was against the law at the time for women to fly fighters and we're going through the same training as the men and i was like are you kidding me and it just just you know i speak like a fighter pilot it just pissed me off and i was like if you people who know me know that just tell me i can't do something or tell me i can't do something because i'm a girl and I, it's just going to make me you know even if that's not what i was supposed to do it's going to make me prove you wrong and so I just had this dream in my heart that like I was going to prove them wrong and I marched around like I'm going to be the first woman fighter pilot. I had no idea what I was talking about. I didn't know the difference between a flap and an aileron. It's not like I had any sort of sort of aviation influence but i just wanted to show them that girls could be fighter pilots and i had nothing to do with the change i just am so grateful for the pioneers who went before me there were so many of these women who were qualified and capable like the women world war ii pilots who really paved the way for us the women air force service pilots and others who went before me in the military but like many things in life you know timing is everything right so i was in the right place at the right time when the door finally opened, the law changed, the policy changed, I had the right grit and the right qualifications, I wouldn't let the dream die, but it took like nearly 10 years until I actually took off an A-10 warthog, so it didn't, it didn't happen overnight, but I wasn't going to let it, I wasn't going to let the flame go out, and I looked for opportunities to bloom where I was planted, to not have a chip on my shoulder to keep serving and excelling and learning, and then when the door opened, I was ready to go. Well so what
1: over the course of that time I mean there's the it's one thing to change the regulations it's another thing to change the culture so what did you see did you
0: see a lot of change did you not see see the things changing that needed to? So I was in the ninth class at the Air Force Academy that allowed women and uh, we were around 10% women at the time and I mean, I had three older brothers, so maybe I you know had to fight for my food. know <laughs> it gave me a little bit of feistiness to prepare for a little bit of a environment to stand up you know for myself and to not be intimidated but it i'd have to i kind of look back at it at the time I was just trying to get through it, survive excel prove that we belonged um but the the culture was was challenging for sure um there, we, women were not uh, accepted uh, across the board. There were definitely dynamics of ostracization, or we would even isolate ourselves as I look back. Like we, you know, as one of these dynamics, I'm sure sociologists would better understand this as they studied it, where like, I'm just trying to like be one of the guys, but that means, you know, you're not. And so we didn't necessarily even help each other out. If you know how that is, right? Women were not like the best to each other, especially when we're in tough environments like that. Um, and we're just trying to prove that we belong, prove that we could serve alongside. Uh, and it didn't matter whether you were a boy or a girl. But it was not an easy, easy transition or environment. Uh, it, it was taken to a whole other level when they opened up fighters to women. I mean, you had our, at the time, the debate going on in Congress, you had our chief of staff of the Air Force at the time testifying before Congress. And he was asked, I'm going to paraphrase, you know, Would you rather take a less qualified man over a more qualified woman to fly in these cockpits? And he said yes. He said, "I know it doesn't make sense, or something like that. You know, but it's just the way I feel. Like this is the leader of our Air Force, responsible to organize, train, and equip our Air Force. This is the culture that we were in at the time. Where, and I've written about this, where the arguments over the course of our history, where women have served since the Revolutionary War, uh, never under compulsion, and in, in unbelievable positions, uh, to include spies and some of them disguising themselves. And in the early days, they've always served. And there was always these arguments as to whether we should." Or could be in these positions, right? So the should is the cultural argument. the could is lumping all women together and making gross generalizations about all you know all of our characteristics, which would just drive me crazy. I mean, I feel like the calling of my life is to create cognitive dissonance in people so that I break their stereotypes, right? All women are not a certain way, and all men are not a certain way. And I used to say when they were arguing about whether women should be in combat and even on the, in the gra- on the ground, wait, so that means like, ALL MEN ARE QUALIFIED and, AND NO WOMEN ARE, SO, LIKE, JUSTIN BIEBER AND Wee uh, HERMAN ARE QUALIFIED AND SERENA WILLIAMS IS NOT? LIKE, HOW DO YOU COME UP WITH THESE GENERALIZATIONS? WE'RE AMERICA, RIGHT? WE PICK THE BEST MAN FOR THE JOB EVEN IF SHE'S A WOMAN. SET THE QUALIFICATIONS. IF WE WANT OUR BEST MILITARY, WHY WOULD YOU EXCLUDE 50% OF YOUR PEOPLE FROM COMPETING? WHY WOULD YOU HAVE AN ORDER OF MERIT AND HAVE A WOMAN GRADUATING AT OR NEAR THE TOP OF HER CLASS in PILOT TRAINING AND THEN GO TO THE NEXT PERSON DOWN TO FILL THE FIGHTER cockpit? It's not good for our readiness. It's not good for our military. So, you know, this is a real challenge. When they opened up, uh, the debate to open up fighters to women was so emotional and so based on these stereotypes and feelings and, in my view, underlying insecurities, quite frankly. Um, And... uh, I mean it was real when you have the leadership talking about how you don't belong there but then basically it's opened up to you Uh, there's a picture if you ever want to look at it where I was at a press conference with that very same chief of staff of the Air Force when they opened up the positions and they flew a couple of us in they had identified seven of us to go to fighters and I was purposefully sitting there with my arms crossed giving him side eyes like on purpose like like you know didn't, you know, whatever, I don't want to, I don't want to use a swear word, but, uh, like, I didn't, you know, he, he was a part of the problem in setting the culture, so it it was challenging. Um, They, you know, they would often say, uh, you know, women can't be fighter pilots because they're too emotional. I've never met a more emotional group of people than those who are against women serving in the military. (laughs) There were like these emotional arguments. I'm like, that sounds a lot like emotion to you. I'm looking objectively at, you know, what's going on here. So, it was a difficult journey for sure but i i'm grateful that i had the opportunity to blow the door open for others and to pave the way uh i'm just the kind of person i'm not going to sit on the sidelines i'd rather be the one that goes through the hardship uh to provide more opportunities for others and you also ended
1: up fi- filing a lawsuit right yeah. because when you got to saudi arabia yeah. you know airwomen were were required to cover up and Head to toe, and and men were not. So
0: this was a, a ridiculous situation. That is a classic case of what I call bureaucratic bureaucratic policy creep, uh, which big bureaucracies can often do. And I actually started fighting this when I was first deployed to Kuwait. It didn't apply to me. I just found out about it and I felt like I was in a position as an officer, as a leader, as a as a fighter pilot, uh, that I had a voice uh, to fight for others, the young enlisted women who were in Saudi Arabia, being told, you can't drive, you got to sit in the back seat of the car, you got to put on basically a burqa, uh, and, and it got more and more ridiculous over time. And it, it just kept getting, you know, People kept adding on to it. We were told, you have to always have a male escort, and if you were stopped uh, by the religious police in Saudi Arabia, you were to lie and claim your fellow service woman as your wife to comply with Sharia. Like, this was integrity first is our top core value in the Air Force. And we literally had a policy on the wall saying lie, and that's not your boss, that's not your commander, that's not your fellow service woman. It was so screwed up on so many levels. SO I WENT ON THIS 8-YEAR JOURNEY. IT'S A LONG STORY, YOU CAN GOOGLE IT, BUT um, I, I DIDN'T INTEND TO HAVE THIS TURN INTO SUCH A HIGH-PROFILE FIGHT. BUT I JUST THOUGHT IT WAS WRONG. AND I STARTED LOOKING INTO IT, IDENTIFYING WHERE IT CAME FROM. EVERYBODY THOUGHT IT WAS ABOVE THEIR PAY GRADE. NOBODY REALIZED IT WAS ONLY A TWO-STAR GENERAL'S POLICY. THE TWO-STAR GENERAL DIDN'T EVEN KNOW IT WAS POLICY, BY THE WAY. I MEAN, would THEY ROTATE IN AND OUT. THINGS GET HANDED DOWN TO THEM. Uh, But ultimately, they ordered me to Saudi about six years into this and then threatened to court-martial me if I didn't put the burqa on myself. I complied with it, but then I filed, I tried one last time to change it from the inside out, and then I filed Martha McSally versus Donald Rumsfeld in court. It was a very good career move, but uh, um, I I would do it again. I believe it was really unnecessary, honestly, if they had just um, looked at the facts and... Uh, change the policy. The State Department wasn't requiring it. In fact, they were telling their women not to wear, uh, you know, the U.S. women when they're representing the government, not to wear the garb. And uh, so I ended up, uh, after we were going through the court process, getting an uh, act of Congress passed as a, you know, I was on a one woman lobbying campaign and attached some legislation to the defense bill in the Senate and a freestanding bill in the House and got it signed into law to overturn the policy once and for all. It was about an eight year battle. But through this whole thing, through
1: your rise in the military, you're knocking over every barrier in front of you, through your rise in politics, you were carrying a personal secret that you finally decided to talk about at a a Senate hearing a few months ago. And that was that you had been sexually assaulted, that you had been raped by a a superior officer. And that not only did you carry that trauma with you, but you had the second trauma of finding out the system was just completely not going to take you serious. Well, Talk about your yeah. decision that, that you actually finally had to sure. speak about this.
0: Well, it, it, I wouldn't call it a secret because you know people who know me and love me and people in my life knew that this is what I had been through, so it wasn't like I was saying it for the first time, but I was saying it for the first time publicly as a senator. And um, this is something that so many women and so many men go through. Let's just be frank about it. In an audience this size, you know, one of three women and one of four men, the CDC says, in their lifetime will have been sexually assaulted. Some people go to their graves. Um, other people go through a different process where they immediately you know, report it and, and go through that um, law enforcement judicial process. Uh, for me, I did not take that path at the time. Um, I look back at uh, where I was just emotionally and just where I was um, without getting into the details. I was just trying to survive and thrive and uh, um, I, I just didn't, like many people, didn't, didn't report it. I was just trying to continue to do my job and just deal with the trauma in the ways that I best knew how to deal with it to survive it. Um, and. Uh, when I decided in March to share publicly what I went through, I just felt like I was at a place where, again, I wasn't, I wasn't hiding it. Like people who, all, people who know me, they all know this happened to me. But I have a new unique platform as a United States Senator, and we were about to have a hearing about the topic, and we, were, we had victims testifying, and we are having much debate and discussion about whether the commander should stay responsible for making the decisions or not. And I felt very strongly that having been a commander and a survivor and not, um, not taking this lightly, that commanders need to be ultimately accountable and responsible and equipped uh, and selected uh, based on the right criteria uh, to address this issue and it not be stripped them, from them. But I felt like my perspective was incomplete and in, it wasn't because I was a commander, but also because I was a survivor, that I just felt like I needed to complete that perspective as I, uh, stepped up to lead on this issue and uh, look I'll be frank when I got appointed to the Senate and Sat down with my team and we sort of strategically planned What are our focus areas going to be and what are we going to lead on this wasn't a topic? I had planned to lead on is that right, but um, I mean, you know I've been a voice on it uh-huh. for sure, but certainly not in the way that all of a sudden um, I was You know, put in that place, or put myself in that place. I just, my decision was made on a Monday night for a Wednesday hearing. As I flew into DC and I saw what the hearings were for the week and looked through what the topics were, I just felt like I just need to say this out loud um, to complete the perspective that I have, uh, to make sure people understand that I have a unique perspective, and to kind of step into that leadership role. Uh, based on the fullness of my experiences. And so I made that decision and and, and shared what I did uh, in the hearing. And, uh, you know, it's been an extraordinary few months since then. Um, You know, immediately I called on uh, the acting secretary of defense, Shanahan, and the chairman of the Joint Chiefs to create a task force to uh, really take a deeper dive in 45 days. I gave them like a timeline because the defense bill was being marked up. Uh, to take a fresh look at from the moment a assault is reported to when the judicial process is over. Instead of stripping commanders from the decision, what else needs to be fixed in this process so that we have the best decision possible once it gets to the commander? And that includes the support to the victim and the timeliness and the investigators and and the jags, the prosecutors across the board. Like, what's still messed up with this process? And, um, you know, we've got, I I introduced legislation, and... On this ta- on this issue, focused again, we we've got to deal with the prevention side. That's our next step. But I just instead of stripping commanders, what else do we need to fix? Because the status quo isn't an option. And in the markup of our defense bill in the Senate, 17 of my 18 provisions, in some form, are actually included in the bill. So I'm really but, honored to be able to be leading on this.
1: But you look at the statistics and you look at the studies that have been done. There there are more reports now. There are of sexual assault, which is. I guess you could read as a healthy thing, people are feeling that they can step forward, but say yeah. the amount of retribution that people say they still feel after they do step forward is, is those statistics are pretty
0: high too. Look, we, we have a problem in our military and we have a problem in our society. We have a problem at our universities. Um, uh, this is prevalent everywhere. And we take people from society into our military. We expect more from them. Right, we absolutely do, um, but you know, you're taking people in. You're doing the best you can to judge their character as recruiters and those who give, you know, appointments to the academies, and then we got to inculcate them with our values, and we got to make sure that they understand uh, that part of what our mission and our moral responsibility is as we go put our lives on the line uh, is that we're not committing crimes against each other, uh, that we have good order and discipline, that we have respect, that uh, that, that 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 people. WE'RE WILLING TO PUT OUR LIVES ON THE LINE FOR OUR FREEDOMS, BUT TO HAVE to have YOU BE AT RISK BY a, a TEAMMATE COMMITTING A CRIME AGAINST YOU IS JUST UNACCEPTABLE. ABSOLUTELY UNACCEPTABLE. SO WHERE ARE WE WHERE WE CAN, YOU KNOW, AGAIN, REPORTS ARE GOING UP. That's THAT'S NOT NECESSARILY A BAD THING BECAUSE PEOPLE MAY FEEL LIKE THE SYSTEM IS MORE TRUSTWORTHY TO TREAT THEIR treat what happened to them in a fair way where justice has the best chance uh, to be heard. In cases that are very difficult to prove, let's just be honest with ourselves about that. Even if they're reported right away, they're very difficult to prove. Um, but when somebody does that, we still have real challenges, especially as the process lingers of individuals. either There's either like blatant retaliation happening, which, again, that needs to be routed out. People need to be held accountable, especially if it's a supervisor and the climate that they have. That has to be addressed and not tolerated. The other element we have is where there is a sort of social ostracization that happens. Somebody reported. Now the perpetrators may be in the same unit. People start to take sides. You're still coming to work together. There's there's what happens, especially with this younger generation. A lot of it's happening online, where they're, the the victim is now feeling isolated, and we've got to stop that from happening too. It, there's a real. So how do you how do you stop
1: it? And and have you had What kind of conversations have you had with your Senate colleagues? I think Senator Gillibrand, is is, she's one of the people who argues this has to be taken out of the chain of
0: command, that this
1: cannot be addressed.
0: So I, I respect her and her passion on the issue. I just think she's wrong on it. I mean, having served myself, um, having been a commander, it, it's like nothing else in civilian society where we are responsible for putting people's lives on the line and, and telling them to take lives. We're responsible for when they eat and when they sleep and how they behave. We're responsible for literally everything. We're responsible for making sure that we have good order and discipline and we have the right climate and the culture. Uh, that's what command is all about. And so if you want to make sure you don't have sexual assault and harassment in your unit, commanders need to be selected, trained, educated, equipped, and held accountable to stop this problem. Uh, The problem is not, in the end, when a decision comes to a commander and with the evidence that's given to them, they say go to court martial or don't go to court martial. We've had outside groups that we've authorized in Congress who have taken a look at commander's decision-making processes over the last years and they've studied each of the cases and said the numbers are like 95% of them they agreed with the decision process so that's not what's broken right from my perspective what's broken post-assault is these are taking too long for example where what's lingering as a cancer in the unit where there's the opportunity for a retaliation or ostracization happening while they still have to come to work and deploy uh, every single day. We're, we don't have enough investigators that are highly trained to immediately address this issue. We don't have enough special victims' counsels, which are unique to the military we've given them, who is the lawyer for the victim. The prosecutor is not the lawyer for the victim, the prosecutor represents the military. Um, but oftentimes, you want that lawyer in the room for the first interview of the victim with the investigators but sometimes they don't have them at bases and it takes them, you know, a week or 10 days to get there. That's not acceptable. If we really are committed to addressing this issue, we got to put resources to it. If we think it's a readiness issue, when we're turning readiness around with, you know, parts and bullets and flying hours, we put resources into it. So part of my bill is putting more resources into highly trained prosecutors, highly trained investigators, uh, special victims' counsels that are on the scene immediately, to quickly support the victim so that that first interview has the best ability to get the forensics and everything that's needed in order to make that case strong. So that's speed up the timeline. You can't have years going by, and thoroughness and timeliness are not mutually exclusive as these cases linger. And while they're lingering, you have this uncertainty, and then you have, again, what happens mostly with peers of, like, well, she must be a liar because he wasn't convicted. And, again, I've seen this. I've been through this. Uh, IT'S AN EXTREME CHALLENGE, SO the, THE MORE THAT WE CAN DO TO VERY SWIFTLY AND THOROUGHLY INVESTIGATE, HAVE THE DIGITAL FORENSICS, WHICH IS ANOTHER PIECE OF MY LEGISLATION, BECAUSE A LOT OF THE INFORMATION TO BUILD A CASE RIGHT NOW IS IN YOUR DIGITAL LIFE, OF WHAT THE CONTEXT WAS. 85% OF MILITARY CASES ARE PEOPLE YOU KNOW, NOT STRANGERS, AND THAT CONTEXT OF WHAT'S GOING ON THERE BEFORE AND AFTER ARE REALLY, are really IMPORTANT. All of these pieces, I think, are really going to make a difference to have a stronger judicial process that people have more faith in, and therefore more people would be willing to report.
1: So as you were making your decision, you you said it it just suddenly you realized on a plane ride that you were going to have to speak publicly about this over the next two days. So how did you struggle over what you would say and what you didn't say? I mean, you didn't name the perpetrator, you didn't name the people who sort of made it harder on you?
0: Um, So my motivation, again, I decided Monday night uh, and the hearing was Wednesday morning. And I I didn't say out loud what happened to me because I wanted to go through a process of trying to convict someone through the court of public opinion. I actually believe in due process um, there are uh, limits when things have happened so long ago of being able to prove or even statute of limitations related to it. That wasn't, my, that wasn't my motivation and people can criticize me for that, fine, go ahead. Uh, you've not walked in my shoes and like many victims who chose not to report at the time, I was not going to, my purpose wasn't to focus on my case. Um, I I didn't want it to be some sort of frenzy that then focused on the second phase of that where I actually was trying to be helpful to the military based on explaining generally what I had experienced and how that was poorly handled in a very junior varsity way Uh, that that very much troubled me. But I didn't want to get into naming names of when that happened and how that happened. The point was like, let's look through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. And, and just stand in the gap with credibility that I've been through this. I've I've seen the process. Uh, I've been a commander myself. I am a survivor myself. I, I understand deeply what the shortfalls are and what needs to change. Uh, a lot has changed over the last several years, so I didn't also want to have what I was directing to happen be based on something that I experienced even as a commander. I gave up command in 2006. Uh, but a lot has changed since then on this topic and how we've really – Uh, improve the process and improve many elements of it and so I just it was more about filling in uh, people understanding my passion and perspective uh, being kind of more complete as someone who's also survived this I also thought it was important for people there's so much ignorance out there about sexual assault people are just ignorant I mean they're naive they may be well intended but they're just ignorant still there's a lot of myths out there about what it looks like or how it happens or what survivors look like. Like, what are, what are the big myths? What are well, the I've biggest had so many people. Presumptions I've had so many people to include people, like, really um, credible, experienced people in the, in, the, in the media and other parts of my life who have said to me since then, I, I, you know, I don't understand how this happened to you. How how did this happen to you? You know, you're a fighter pilot. You're a badass. You know, you sued the secretary of defense. You flew in combat. How does this happen to you? And and my response is like, oh, you know, again, I don't want to throw out swear words, but I didn't, I didn't come out of my mother's womb as a fighter pilot. First of all, right? I mean, I grew, I found my strength in and my voice and my passion in part because I survived things like this. Not, not, I am who I am, not just in spite of going through it, but in many cases because of it. It is deepened, in, instead, uh, instead of crushing me, which it had the possibility to do, and there were some days I thought it was going to, I was able by the grace of God to have these experience actually propel me to strength, to action, to service, to fighting for others who don't have a voice, to fighting for women and girls. Don't you dare hold them back. Don't you dare hold them down. Like it has turned into a passion of service in my life uh, that propelled me on this path. Uh, but it's not, I didn't I didn't start here. I ended here, if that makes sense. And and these types of things can happen uh, to anyone. <laughs> Uh, and so I, I thought, I, actually, now I'm breaking stereotypes again, I guess. It wasn't really my intention, but to try and shake up some people's even views of of how this type of thing happens. And, and uh, also, by the way, you know, you don't have people walking around with the word rapist on their forehead. You know, uh, they're hiding in plain sight, too. Both the victims and the perpetrators. So, I f- you know, I feel like part of, I didn't intend it at the time, but part of what has happened and part of the I guess the blessing of me speaking publicly is is also to help break you know break up people's thinking on it to educate people. Uh, They probably have loved ones who have been through this. who have never talked to them about it. Uh, And also my hope was to inspire others who have been through this whether it was yesterday or 30 years ago uh, that this this doesn't have to end the hope in your life and it doesn't have to end the vibrancy of your life. And you've already had so much taken away from you. Don't let your perpetrator take any more away from you. You've got to get through this and you've got to survive it through whatever path you take to become whole and healed and full and empowered. And like, like, I just want to like, you know, be that voice for them. Don't you dare let anything more be robbed of you than what's already been taken. And what have
1: you heard since then from former colleagues in the military, from from other survivors of experiences like this.
0: Uh, we've had an amazing outpouring from so, so many people, people I know, people I will never meet, but just it's it's been really extraordinary. Other. Um, other survivors, uh, as I'm even out and about in Arizona, I mean, sometimes a young person or sometimes an elderly person will just come up and whisper to me, like, thank you for being my voice. You know, I went through this too. And I mean, it's just, uh, it's, it's at times overwhelming to, um, you know, to realize that I, I can give them a little bit of hope, uh, given the, the role that I'm in. Yeah, I've had other colleagues and others, um, co- you know, reach back like, I had no idea this happened to you. There's a lot of people who have expressed sort of anger towards, um, you know, something like this happening to someone that they know. Which is, this is, these are all natural things, but they, 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 can help break through what can sometimes be a challenging conversation to have. We, I don't, again, we don't have to get into the details of, of all that, but it, I think it helps kind of break through some of it to take the i don't know the barriers down of trying to have a better understanding even you know with commanders i've met at every military base in arizona and 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 making sure having the conversation with commanders about what do you what are you doing about this what's happening at your base listening to all the commanders at the squadron level and above as to what they feel is broken in the system what needs to change and look you every every once in a while you have a dirtbag out there right who's been given a responsibility OF LEADERSHIP, BUT I WILL TELL YOU, THE ONES THAT I MEET EVERY SINGLE DAY, WHEN THEY'RE GIVEN THAT GUIDE ON TO TAKE RESPONSIBILITY FOR COMMAND, THEY TAKE THAT SO SERIOUSLY, AND THEY REALLY WANT TO MAKE SURE THAT EVERY ONE OF THEIR PEOPLE ARE PROTECTED AND THAT NOTHING HAPPENS ON THEIR WATCH LIKE THIS. Again, they may be a little ignorant and naive about kind of how it happens, and so we gotta make sure that they're educated and equipped uh, and then given the resources and held accountable if they, if they fail. Uh, but we've got amazing men and women serving in our military and um, that are given the opportunity to lead. And so me, I think, just helping to break the, uh, breaking the ice isn't the right way to say that, but just to kind of go there in a, in a way that um, I uniquely can has been an amazing opportunity.
1: Well, we are out of time, and I just I, I just but I think that the that what you have done is so important. And yes, you're right. It is sort of um, a presumption of everybody, you know, if this could happen to Martha McSally. Um, but I think that that is the exact thing that makes your voice so much that it, it is going to be heard in this debate, maybe in a way that, so many other people's haven't. So I think that it's such an important thing you've done here. And I want to thank you, first of all, for for that, but also for being here with us this morning. And um, I, I think it is time now for me to hand it off to my colleague, Bob Costa. And again, thank you nice. so much. Absolutely. Senator. Thanks,
0: everybody. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.